Good evening. How are y'all? Okay. Hey. Hey, Michael. Good to see you again. So, we are starting a new series this week on the book of Daniel. The We'll at least do the first six chapters, I promise you that. Whether we'll do uh, the second half of the book, the second six chapters remains to be seen because it gets kind of all prophetic and weird and stuff. And um, if I can't preach it, I won't, um, basically is what I'm promising you. But we'll try. How many people here have, have, uh, just raise your hand if you've read at least six chapters in the book of Daniel in the past year. Okay, that's a good showing. All right. Um, In the past two years, raise your hand if you've looked at the book of Daniel. Okay, great. All right. You guys are beating morning church. It's amazing. So here's some of the difficulties when we start a study of this book. It was written 600 years before Jesus. 600 years. And, And the question is, does it relate to us today in 2013? That's the question. Something written that long ago in another part of the world to a different culture altogether. How can we take anything away from that? I am particularly excited about this series that we're going to do on Daniel because I think really of... Uh, All the Old Testament books, uh, I think very few of them relate almost hand in glove to our culture today like the book of Daniel does. Um, Let me give you a little background history kind of thing. So you've got the ancient kingdom of Israel. It's divided into two parts. There's the northern kingdom of Israel, as it's called, and the southern kingdom of Judah. And God had promised long ago when they first began that if they were faithful, if they served him, if they loved him and loved each other, that they would continue in the land and do very, very well. He said, however, if you disobey me, if you treat each other badly, then I am going to, at the very worst, I'm going to have to cart you off to different countries to be taught a lesson. And so they go on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And being the kind of people that they were, they began slowly but surely to turn away from the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And what came to pass was that the northern kingdom of Israel was carted off by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Israel, because it remained faithful to the Lord longer, stayed in place. But the time finally came when the southern kingdom of Judah was carted off as well. And this is the era of time that we find ourselves in. There's a map I'm going to show you right now. This is the uh, ancient Near Eastern world. In the center, you've got Mesopotamia, and then that orange is the Babylonian Empire. 
Now, if you take a look over, you see the Mediterranean Sea over on the left-hand side. If you look on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, you'll see Jerusalem right by where it says Israel. That is where our story begins. We will end up today 900 miles to the east. No, no, go back. Over by where it says Iraq, the present country of Iraq, you'll see Babylon. Now, Babylon. Why would Iraq be called Babylon? Actually, there's all sorts of different names in the Old Testament for this area. One of them was Chaldea. One of them was Shinar. And one was Babylon. You would know the name Babylon if you are familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel. So Babylon derives its name from that area, which is smack dab in the middle. When people first got together and decided to coalesce and make a name for themselves, it says in Genesis 11, the Lord, seeing what they are about to do and realizing the great evil they were capable of, decided to scatter them across the face of the earth by means of giving them different languages. And that was the story of the Tower of Babel. Let us make a name for ourselves, they said. Let us construct a tower that reaches to the heavens. Same place, Babel. As a matter of fact, if you went to the capital of the Babylonian Empire, to Babylon itself, if you would do the next slide now, Nebuchadnezzar the king actually constructed a 650-foot ziggurat, a man-made mountain in the center of the city to please one of his wives, it said, who came from the mountainous areas and missed it on the flat plains of Mesopotamia. So he built this giant structure, 650 feet tall, with hanging gardens here and there and everywhere. It became, as they say, one of the wonders of the ancient world. So picture yourself now as a young Jewish person in your teens. Think about what you were like in your teens. Do you remember how insecure you are? You've kind of got one foot in the adult world and one foot in the child world. You're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to understand whether you still believe the same things as your parents, whether you want to follow their ways or not. Are all the old tales about this God that I've heard about from ages past, are they really true? Or are they just a bunch of rules handed down to keep me in line? You're in that stage of life where questioning is the proper thing to do. Because at this point in your life, you're starting to make things your own. A lot of you have uh, left your homes from elsewhere in the country and come to Denver. Very rarely do you find somebody in Denver who's from Denver. Maybe they're from Colorado, but most of the people you meet are from elsewhere. And they're coming to, to find themselves. They're coming to go to school. They're coming to get a job here to make enough money so they can spend their winters on the slopes that are supposed to have tons of snow. 
unlike this winter, where we get rain in January. <laughs> so, there's this time of life where you're questioning everything, properly so, and that is the stage of life that Daniel and his friends were in when their country is attacked by the empire of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. Picture yourself as a teenager in Denver if the communist Chinese attacked the U.S. And then because what they wanted to do was they wanted to acclimate some of the best and brightest of the U.S. to their Chinese ways, they carted a bunch of Denverites in their teens off to Beijing. Imagine walking in to Beijing after being in Colorado. I mean, Beijing makes Denver look like a cow town. We've been around for a couple hundred years at the most, and you're going to a city that's been around for thousands. You're overwhelmed with the humanity and the ancient learning and whatever, and now they want you to become one of them. This is a friendly captivity. They want to school you in all of their ways. Why? So you can be an example to the people back in the U.S. This is what was going on with Daniel and his friends. A friendly captivity, which may be the most dangerous kind of captivity of all. We're going to start uh, reading in Daniel 1. And let's see where it takes us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is like in the Lord of the Rings movies. Armies camp outside. They build ramparts that they roll up against the walls so their soldiers can go over the top and in. They use batting rams to get through the front door. It's a besieged city. So the first thing you're doing as a teenager is you are stuck inside this city that is at war under siege and you can't get out. And you're wondering what's going to happen. And then the worst of all your fears is realized is the enemy breaks down the gates. They scale the walls. They take over the government. And you are a defeated country. Here's what it says about that. Verse 2. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. This is not about inferior military might from the perspective of the writer of Daniel. Maybe a military historian would say, well, Nebuchadnezzar's army had the latest in technology and were able to defeat the Jews of Jerusalem. 
Or they could say the Israelite army was vastly outnumbered and didn't have supplies after all because the city was besieged. But the Bible tells us that God is working behind the scenes to hand this southern kingdom over to the Babylonians, that God is behind it, that he's allowing it to happen, that Nebuchadnezzar is merely a pawn in his hand to do what he wants to do with his own people. Now, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what would. Because what it tells me is, is that God is not beyond punishment to bring his people back to where they need to be. That God is not beyond the unthinkable to bring us into relationship with him. This doesn't matter if you're a layperson or a pastor. There's a pastor right now in Denver whose nefarious deeds, his relationships with multiple women in his congregation have come to light. I'm saying as many as 20-some women. And God is allowing this to come to light. People are going to begin to find out about it. What's going to happen? I'll tell you what's going to happen. The destruction of his ministry. And why would God allow the destruction of a Christian pastor's ministry when what God is about is the spread of the gospel? Why would God do that? Because God loves us enough to besmirch his own name. It doesn't matter to him that his reputation is tarnished if he can get you back into relationship with himself. That should scare you. Because if he does it with pastors and leaders, he will certainly do it with everybody. So God is the one behind Jerusalem falling. And God puts an exclamation point on it by allowing these pagan, star-worshipping, occult-practicing Babylonians to take some of the holy, sacred implements from the temple of the one true God back to Babylon as treasure, as booty, in the temple of a pagan god who is no god. Because if you're the Babylonians, you're thinking, our God is stronger than the God of the Israelites. We have won. We are taking, we are ransacking the temple. We're taking some of the holy things back, and we're offering them to our God as proof that he is stronger than the gods of our enemies. And God lets it happen. Verse 3, 
Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. If you're a Jew reading this, it is tragically ironic. Do you guys know where the father of the Israelites was called out of to go to the promised land? Ur of the Chaldeans, Babylon. Abraham was called out of Babylon to go to the promised land, out of a land of spiritual darkness and slavery to demonic powers, into a relationship with the one true God of the universe. And now, God is sending His people back there to do it all over again. I don't know where God pulled you out of. I don't know where you started your walk with God. But most of the time, we start in pretty dark places. Your life has to fall apart before you even listen to what God has to say and follow Him into the promised land through all the trials and tribulations of that journey. Here is the scary lesson. If you get to the promised land, a relationship with the God who is the creator of heavens and earth, and you cease paying attention to your relationship with him, and you cease paying attention to the way he asks you to treat his people. Over and over again, if you ignore what the Holy Spirit inside you is saying to you about what you're doing or thinking or saying, if you pay no attention to the prophets he sends your way in terms of pastors and teachers and Bible study leaders who plead with you to to, to stop what, doing what you're doing and follow the Lord yet again. If you have friends who are encouraging you to follow Jesus and you keep slipping away in the darkness, doing the things that you used to do, at some point God will hand you over back into that lifestyle and you go back into the pit from whence you came to learn a lesson to come out all over again. This is scary stuff. I hate to start off a Bible series this way. But never, ever think that your disobedience doesn't have consequences. Because God loves you too much to allow you to be in the light and keep straying back into the dark. He allows you too much to be a hypocrite. And if it takes letting you go back to the place where you came from and experiencing that misery all over again. He'll allow it to happen. Because God finally has a point where he says, enough already. Enough already. 
You want to live that way? Okay. Back into the darkness you will go in order to be taught a lesson not to blaspheme my holy name. Maybe it's a generational thing with you. Maybe your grandparents came to faith and left a life of sin behind. Don't think that you're above going back there with your continued disobedience to God, just like the Israelites. Because he will do whatever it takes to bring you back into a life-giving relationship with himself. I remember one time um, I had a close family member who was struggling, well, actually not struggling with alcoholism. If that were the case, then she might be okay, but she had stopped struggling and was just giving herself over to the old ways. And I saw Brendan Manning at a conference, one of my favorite authors of all time, uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Abba's Child, those kinds of books. And he had struggled with alcoholism himself. So I went up and I said, what can I do for this family member of mine? What, how can I pray for her? Because I see her going down and down and down in the darkness, and I'm afraid she's not going to be able to come back. And he says, pray that she hits bottom. I go, say what? He said, pray that she hits bottom. Because when you hit the bottom is when you start looking up. That's what's going on here. Now let's take a look and see if there's any correlation between this story from 600 years before Jesus to us today. If there's anything reminiscent in the culture of Babylon with what we deal with on a, on a daily basis. Because Babylon has ceased to become a place in Scripture. In Scripture, if you look at it all, Babylon becomes an idea. It becomes a metaphor for a place of captivity, of spiritual bondage. Look at this. So, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is going through his... His, uh, his servant, Ashpenaz, and he's grabbing the young men. The young men. For some reason, they placed a high value on young people. Why? Because young people are easily malleable. They can be turned one way or another. Why do you think every major cult religion has on American campuses some kind of representation, some kind of organization to draw people in. It could be political. It could be religious. It could be anything. They concentrate on the college campuses because that is when people are making decisions for the rest of their lives. They're questioning everything. Youth is of primary importance. I don't care if you want to overthrow the czar or if you want to start a church. Youth becomes of high priority in Babylon. Not, is there any other culture that you know of that prizes youth as opposed to old people? 
or that prizes youth as opposed to the unborn? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Does it sound familiar? My wife was uh, shopping for clothes, and she says, uh, I went to the store, I went to the section of the styles that I like, and it was like everything was sized for girls in their early 20s and teens. Not just youth did Babylon value, but men without any physical defect, handsome. Okay, so Babylon is a culture that values youth and beauty. Boy, I don't know what that sounds like. Is there any culture you know that's obsessed with physical beauty? Anybody take their devotions from Cosmopolitan recently? Oh my gosh. I mean, the cover of Cosmopolitan has become an icon for the culture as far as I'm concerned. This, this month's cover, I think, is Miley Cyrus. I was reading an article. They were going, yeah, it's all about her. You know, I've never put on any airs. I've never been fake, you know. So she's not wearing a bra on the cover. You know, I'm going, oh, sure. That just speaks of your honesty and integrity, Miley. <laughs> so, we are a culture just like Babylon that's obsessed with youth and with beauty. Let's go on. Showing aptitude of every kind of learning. This is verse 4. Well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve. All right, so the Babylonians value intelligence. Youth, beauty, and smarts. Oh, my gosh. Are we in America or not, to a degree? Could America, I mean, like, I know there's this great debate about whether America is a Christian nation or whether it's the whore Babylon, right? It's just somewhere in between. We're like the most bipolar society ever. But we value youth, beauty, and intelligence. You know, the best jobs are reserved for those who are the smartest. You don't want to work with somebody in a workplace who is not sharp because that makes you look bad. It happens even in college, right? You want your lab partner to be someone smarter than you. You value that. Is there any organization, is there any body of people that does not subscribe to the cultural values of youth Beauty and intelligence. Is there a culture that values old people and their wisdom? They're, where, where you're encouraged to find mentors who can guide you, shepherds who can tell you the way to go. Is there a culture who values the unborn? People who can do nothing for you. 
or little babies. This, my friends, is the culture of the kingdom of God. And it begins to stand in direct opposition to the culture of Babylon. Let's look at the beauty thing. What does the kingdom of God say about physical beauty? Well, if you read your Bibles, you'll find out that God does not look at the outward appearance, but He looks at the heart. It doesn't matter whether you're fat, bald, or ugly. In God's eyes, we're told you are beautiful. It doesn't matter whether you're withered or handicapped. We are all members of the same body, we're told. And each member plays a part. To each member has been given a gift for the common good. This is the kingdom of God. This is who we are. And it stands in direct opposition to the culture that we live in. And it stood in direct opposition to the culture that Daniel and his friends were being deported into. And what if you're not very smart? Well, it takes all kinds in God's church. We don't want everybody to be a smart aleck. We don't want everybody to have the same gifts. There are some who are not so bright, who in their kind of folksy, day-to-day lives, put us smart ones to shame. Because their marriages last for 50 years, until death do us part. Because they work the jobs they don't really enjoy to make sure their kids have enough to eat and have a better place to start in life than they do. They were the janitors. They were the waiters. They were the cooks. They were the garbage men and women of the society, and they don't care. And we don't care because we value them in spite of the fact that they don't know Einstein's theory of relativity. This is the kingdom of God. This is why it's important to study the life of Daniel and the book of Daniel is because there are so many parallels to our society. How are we supposed to live here? How are we supposed to make it? Verse 6, among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Now, these are all Hebrew names. These are all names that glorify the Hebrew God, El, Elohim, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They're in alphabetical order, actually. In Hebrew, Daniel's not singled out first because somehow he's the uh, star of the show. He puts them all in one category. These are all guys from nobility. These are, we think, probably descendants of a former king of Israel, maybe Hezekiah. And they're carted off to another land. And the first thing that the chief official, Ashpenaz, does is to rename them. And he renames them names that glorify Babylonian gods. And these are the names. 
to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. These are all names. To give them a new identity in a culture that is foreign. Babylon is beginning to just take its fingers and begin to embrace these young men and say, you're mine. You're ours. Matter of fact, we're going to start calling you by different names so that you get used to the, and have names that sound like everybody else's in Babylon. We're going to start to acclimate you to our culture. We're going to start to make you one of ours. And the first thing we're going to do is give you a new identity. This is what our culture does to us who are trying to live in the kingdom of God. It begins to wrap its arms around you. It's a friendly captivity after all, is it not? And it says, come, be part of us. Take on our names. Take on our thoughts. Take on our actions. Be one of us. We're going to give you the best that we have to offer. Come, be part of us. There's a battle of cultures going on in the beginning of the book of Daniel. And the question you've got to ask yourself is, who's going to win in this culture war? Are Daniel and his Jewish friends going to be victorious and keep following the one true God? Or are the Babylonians going to enfold them in their arms and make them part of the culture? We're told that God has allowed this all to happen. That God has allowed these young Hebrew guys to be in this foreign culture. Is it possible that God is allowing you, as young Christian men and women, to be part of a culture that is set against Him? Why would He do that? When the culture is trying to unfold you into its arms. The culture promises it's all for us. The culture woos us back into its ways. I wish I had time to finish chapter one, but I don't. I've got like two more pages of notes and we're not going to get there today. But I promise you, if you stay with this series you will gain insights into how to be a Christian in this culture in ways that only can come from reading the Old Testament. If you've ever wondered if the Old Testament is applicable to us today, sign up for Dr. Blomberg's and Leah's course. 
but also come to church and learn about how Daniel and his friends find their way in this culture that is seeking to assimilate them. I have all sorts of matrix, you know, uh, metaphors popping in my head, uh, Star Trek, Borg, you will be assimilated kind of scenes that are popping into my head. But you might have heard those too often. And I'm not going to go there right now. But let's just end with this. Is resistance futile? Will you be assimilated? Will you opt for life as part of the matrix? Or for what God offers, which may not be nearly as cushy? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you rivet our attention upon the book of Daniel. I ask that you would open our hearts to the truths that you have in this book for us today. Open your word, Lord God, that we may see the beautiful things that it contains. You calling us to a relationship with yourself, even in the middle of a cultural captivity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.